that argument, that was a hard argument for the US Open and all the other events to make a, you know, to make saying, well, the men deserve more. No, they don't. They, I mean, you can't make that argument. So tennis had that going for them. Golf, on the other hand, doesn't have that, right? So the USGA, for example, you know, they put on the men's US Open and the women's US Open. The men's US Open is inherently more valuable to them than the women's US Open. It just is. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and wannabe business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode of the Course Record Show is brought to you by Land of Thee. Land of Thee was born out of a full-service branding and marketing firm. So these guys know how to tell a story, and that's what they specialize in. Their t-shirts and hats are all about connection. I have a handful of their tees, love them, and have even done a few custom projects with Land of Thee, and they've all been home runs. Totally. They understand that we're linked by a common thread and know exactly how to convey that with their unique message and visuals. My wife and I kick around on the weekends with our Land of Thee gear, the quality's first class. And it's really cool when a shirt can make you feel like you're a small piece of a much bigger story. Use Course 15 to get a 15% discount at landofthee.com. That's Course 15 at landofthee.com. Today, we're joined by Jane Geddes, owner of what is without question, the most colorful resume that I've ever seen. No doubt. Jane won 11 times on the LPGA Tour, including a stint where she tells us she played golf in a bubble, where she won two majors, including the U.S. Women's Open. After retiring, she earned a law degree from Stetson, which is a pretty strong move. And after law school, Jane returned to the LPGA as an administrator this time, working closely with Commissioner Mike Wan as he rebuilt the tour. And then she took a slight career detour. <laughs> That's one way to put it. But I absolutely loved hearing Jane talk about her time working for Vince McMahon at the WWE. You want to talk about stepping outside your comfort zone? Yeah, this is a fun conversation. Jane has great energy, an optimistic outlook on life, and just an uncanny ability to reinvent herself over and over throughout her career. So let's jump right in and hear from Jane herself. Jane, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your playing career, Jane. In 1986, you win the U.S. Open. In 1987, you win five times, including the LPGA Championship. All in all, seven of your 11 wins in both majors come in 1986 and 87. As a player, I'm always fascinated to hear what other players ascribe their best golf to. Why do you think you played so well those years? And did you spend the rest of your career trying to replicate that form? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I have to say, it's the first time I've been asked a question like that, because people don't necessarily go back and do that sort of detailed look at my career. But I did have an amazing 12 months between, you know, say May of, of 1986 and, you know, through 1987. It was an amazing stretch. And something very unique about that time for me is that I journaled that time. I've never journaled before, never journaled after. But for some reason, I felt like, I don't know, I felt like I was in the zone. And I thought, you know, I should probably document this, what, what I'm going through. And I think the one thing that I kept saying to myself was, 
I wonder if everyone else that's playing well is feeling this way. Cause I couldn't really grasp exactly what it was, but I had this unbelievable comfort with my swing. And that was for me, the key. I was never, ever a big practicer ever. And I was one of those where I went to the range. I was going to go work on what I was going to work on. If it was five balls, it was 500 balls, whatever it was, that was it. I actually went through a period of time in 1987 where I went 11 weeks without warming up or hitting a ball after I played. I used to have this little red weight donut, I used to call it. And I put it over my four iron and I just swing it on the putting green. And of course, drove everybody crazy because that was my warm up, right? And everybody's going to the drive range and everything. Here I am playing really well and I'm standing on the side of the green swinging a donut. It was like almost insulting, you know? And, but I, but I went for this 11 week period that I, I just didn't practice. I just had this unbelievable mental visual of my swing and it was working really well. And at that point, I was putting very well, which was, that was always sort of my weakness. I always hit a lot of greens. I always hit the ball well, but I, I didn't consistently putt well. And during that period of time, I putted really, really well. And, and when you're on a roll like that and you feel like you can win every tournament that you tee it up in, literally you win events. And that's really what happened. And to answer your question is, did I try to replicate that for the rest of my career? Of course I did, because I took for granted that I was going to do that forever. I was like, U.S. Open, I'll win five more of those now, you know, that, I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to win a million tournaments, you know, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I didn't win that one. Oh, 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 oh. And, you know, and then it starts waning, right? And you're, then you're spending time now trying to get back to that, that thing that you, I never was able to get back to, but because I feel like I was so fortunate to have had that for, you know, a good 12, you know, to 18 months. So it's pretty cool. That's great perspective. When I, I was sitting with Stuart Sink last week and we were just talking about whatever. And he said a line, he said, you know, you never know what's going to just give you that floating feeling when you're out here on the mm-hmm. tour. And that's it. You, you just, when you're playing well, it's, a, it. it's a floating feeling. It's hard to it's describe. It's a floating feeling. Yeah. I mean, I would be, I felt like there were times and I wrote about this in my journal. I literally felt like I was in a bubble. Like I literally would be on the golf course. And I remember, I remember playing in Japan and I remember I was, I was like four shots down the turn and Ayako Okamoto was, you know, one of the greatest players ever. And I, icon an icon in Japan. And I'm now chasing her for the lead. And, and I have a nine iron in my hand. And this is like on the 17th hole or something. And I'm literally like, I'm going to hit this in the hole. Like I am good. I'm just going to hit it. I know I'm going to hit it. I'm going to hit it so close. Like I'm going to make this birdie and I'm going to win this tournament. Sure enough, I almost hit it in the hole. And I felt like I had like this bubble around my body. Like I was swinging inside this bubble and it was like the perfect bubble. You know, it's crazy, like crazy, you know, thoughts. And like I said, I wrote about it and I read about, I read it now. And I'm like, oh, if I could ever sell that stuff, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be good. So it's, it's really interesting actually. I got to say floating feelings, winning majors, not relatable to me, but not practicing yeah. before or after the round, very <laughs> mucho relatable to me. I <laughs> right, right. That's like most people, right? That's right. That's uh, right. I know. So Jane, you went on to have a really long and successful LPGA tour career, even after the, the initial stint that you just described. But after wrapping up your career, you then made a hard pivot and went back to school for degrees in criminology and even went to law school. Tell yeah. us about what the decision was or how you could have done anything with your career after playing. Yeah. Why did you choose well, that route? It, interesting because I, I'd always kind of in my head thought I wanted to do something after golf. I didn't want to be one of those players that just kind of 
dribbled along, you know, and, and back when I, when I actually like retired and, and said, this is going to be my last event. I was like one of the first players that actually did that. People would just go away. They would just not play anymore, you know? And I, I said, no, I'm going to retire. And I did it kind of only for myself to make sure I had that, like, all right, here's the clean cut. Now I, I was done. I had a good career and, but I wanted to do something else. And I had always promised myself that I would go back and finish up my undergrad. I went to Florida State and played golf and didn't graduate and ended up going back on going out on tour and had about a semester left. And so I wanted to finish that. I wanted to complete that process. So when I went, and it was a good way for me to kind of restart. So when I was in school and trying to figure out what I was gonna do, one thing I knew was Jane Getty's the golfer could definitely open up doors, but Jane Getty's the golfer with just that on my resume, I had to figure out how to hold those doors open too, right? I, I needed more, I needed more skills. I needed something else there. And so I had always thought about going to law school back, 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 back when I was younger. It was just something I thought that I would wanna do. And I had the opportunity, I wasn't doing anything. I was retired from playing. And so it was a perfect time. I went back full-time with all the kids. It was like me and all the you know 24 year olds. And I went back full-time and it was the best decision I could have made because it really gave me an amazing kind of basis and something to to kind of fall back on when I I knew I wasn't going to want to practice law. I was too old to really you know be an associate at a law firm, but I use it every day. I use it all the time, and it was something that I could really you know that I could fall back on. And and as I sort of said, okay, what do I want to do? And while I was in law school, I didn't know that I wanted to go back into golf. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got a I got a phone call from the commissioner of the LPJ then asking me. Oh, what are you, what are you doing after you get out of law school? And I was like, I have no idea. And at that point it was Carolyn Bivens. And she said, why don't you come intern at the LPJ and see if that's something you want to do? I said, great. And then that was it. So, and then I got hired and then Mike Wan was hired, you know, about eight months later after I, I got there. So I was fortunate to be able to spend the time with Mike while I was there. So it was great. It was great. It was, it, everything worked, not initially how I planned, because I didn't know what the plan was, but it definitely worked in a good sequence of events to get me where I am today. That's great. You, you've had two stints in administration at the LPGA Tour. Do you think that in that time, Annika Sorenstam and Lorena Ochoa both retired at the mm -hmm. peak of their games? Do you think that set the LPGA Tour back, losing those two stars in a sport that can be anchored so heavily by stars? I don't, you see, it, it, for me, it's hard to say that the LPGA was set back because, I, I, like I said, I, I was there when Mike Wan walked in the door and worked very closely with Mike at a time you know, at when it was 2000, when did he get there? 2008 or nine, right when the recession hit. And, and the tour was in dire straits, regardless of who was there. I mean, it just was. The economy had crashed. And the last thing companies are thinking about is, oh, let me see how many millions of dollars I'm going to you know, pour into women's golf. It wasn't happening. And so Mike, you know, working with Mike and, and figuring out how do we, how do we turn this thing around and how do we get it on a track that we don't, you know, where we, we have growth and we add events and we do what we need to do from a TV perspective. I think, I don't even know that we looked at those two leaving as a dent at all. I think there are so many great players and personalities, which is really what it is, right? Really great players and personalities that were on the LPJ and continue to be that you're selling the whole package. You're selling women's golf overall. Speaking of great personalities, we're recording this one day after Mike Wan has been announced as the new CEO of the USGA. Now, of course, that still leaves his old position 
as the commissioner of the LPGA Tour Open. So curious to hear from you, Jane, what should be the next commissioner's top priorities? And can you give us the inside scoop whether or not your name's in the hat to be the successor? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thank you very much for even saying that. I, it's such a big job to fill and, and big shoes to fill. But I, but I think they'll find the right person. They'll find a person that has the passion and the knowledge and the experience to take on where Mike left off. Mike has left the tour in a really good place through a very, very difficult year and a half. And, and not surprisingly, you know, Mike's a really creative guy. And so, you know, getting getting the LPGA through that period of time this last year or so has been um, a challenge, but the tour is in a really good spot. And so whoever comes along is going to have to create their own culture and their own kind of, okay, what is the future? What, what do the next 10 years hold? And what do the next 20 years hold? And how do we get there? So, you know, finding the right person will be will be interesting, but I'm sure they'll do that. I know Mike is a part of the process and he, he certainly knows what it takes and is not going to start at the USGA until the summer. So plenty of time to find the right person in that spot. You mentioned joining the LPGA along with Mike Wan in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. It's come a, such a long way and, and it's in such a position of strength since then. What were the changes or evolutions that enabled that comeback? Well, I mean, our priority was getting tournaments on the schedules at first. And that was the big issue with the players. Mike, you know, Mike spent a lot of time listening to the players. He, the players were, felt like they hadn't been heard and they were afraid. You know, the the schedule was dwindling. The purses were dwindling, which is something that had never happened on the LPGA. And so, you know, Mike came in and created relationships. He created relationships with the players. He created relationships with the sponsors he created relationships with the tournament owners um, and operators and made sure everyone had a voice and everyone had a say in the success of the tour and what they needed. You know, he spent an unbelievable amount of time on the road. He went to every single event every week. I think every one of his 11 years working for the tour. And so those relationships are really what, you know, if there was this trust, right? He, he had to create now this new trust, like, trust me, trust me that the product's going to be there. Trust me that if you invest three to $4 million in us, we will deliver, you know, what do you need? We will deliver what you need. And that was, again, as I said, that was a challenge because that was not a U.S. project. That was tournaments all over the world, creating those relationships and putting it all together, um, going to the places where golf was hot, going to South Korea, going to Thailand, going to, you know, um, Japan, and going back to all those places in the U.S. where the LPJ had a popular presence. So it was a, it was a big puzzle to put together. But I think over, you know, over time, and as those relationships became more and more solidified, you know, people started dipping their toe in. As Mike always says, you know to get to know the LPJ is to love the LPJ. So his take was, listen, you know, give us a chance, invest this, okay? We will we will over deliver, I promise. And if we don't, basically you can have your money back in so many words. Well, he never got to that situation because they deliver, they deliver, you know, during pro-am days and they deliver with the extracurricular things that that make tournaments a success and, and the culture on the LPGA is so different than it is, say, on the PGA Tour, where it's it's just different. It, it just overall, and and that's what makes the LPGA sell the way it does. And that's really what Mike just you know, he you know he he reinforced that with the sponsors and also reinforced it with the players and put it in their hands as well and said, listen, I'm going out there and, and saying this about you guys. You guys need to deliver just the way you always do. So it was just his view, and he's a great salesman. You know, 
He's very, he's, he's a really likable guy. He's very, he's, he's a guy you, you feel like you want to trust and you should trust. And, you know, cause he's delivered and that, that always helps, you know? So I learned a lot. He's a good friend and he's also an amazing mentor. And I learned so much by just sitting at tables with him or sitting on in meetings with him, watching him work. And it's, it's a great experience. So that's great. The word that you mentioned, you circled back to it at the end was trust. There's a very successful public relations firm here in Atlanta started by Glenn Jackson. And he wrote a book called preeminence. And it's just about how to build a preeminent organization. And basically the foundation is trust. That's chapter one of the book. Everything is based on trust. And, you know, you can read a lot of these business books and you usually get one or two takeaways from a book. Yeah. And that's the one that jumped off the page. And that's what you emphasized over and over describing how you guys rebuilt the tour. Yeah. It's interesting because I was watching Golf Channel this morning and they were doing a piece on Mike and talking to David Fay and a bunch of other people in the industry. Stuart Sink actually was on. It's interesting because it's hard to say a bad thing about Mike. I mean, it's and, and not that, listen, everybody has their faults, right? There's not everybody that loves Mike, but he has created this sort of this repertoire with with the industry overall that where people go, yeah, he's the right guy, you know, like who else would you pick? And, Again, that, that a lot of that is because a lot of people in the industry really trust him, you know, so it's cool. It's fun to watch. So in a number of sports, there's still a, a very wide open, unresolved debate around equal pay amongst men and women. Tennis has led the way with the Grand Slam pay now at parity for, for their four big events. Mm-hmm. But golf still remains having this large gap. Where do you stand on the issue and what do you think it'll take for, for that pay gap to close across men and women's yeah. sports in general, but golf in particular? Well, two, two parts of that. First of all, tennis was able to achieve that a long time ago for, for a number of reasons, but for one, and, and this is an important um, reason, they were able to play their grand slams, their majors in the same location. So it was a, a difficult argument to make against women not getting equal pay, right? So you're playing at the US Open and Serena's on one time and Roger's on another time and Venus is on another time and you know and Nadal's on another time and I mean I keep going right on center court and you're selling it out every time who's more popular who should be making more money that argument that was a hard argument for the US Open and all the other events to make a you know to make saying well the men deserve more no they don't they, I mean you can't make that argument so tennis had that going for them Golf, on the other hand, doesn't have that, right? So the USGA, for example, you know, they put on the men's US Open and the women's US Open. You know, the men's US Open is inherently more valuable to them than the women's US Open. It just is for the money that they make from a corporate perspective, from TV and whatnot. So their argument is, well, you know, they make more money. And so, you know, now that's that's the real answer. The good news is that Mike Wan has fought supporting equal money for the women in the majors for years. And now he's running, he's heading up the USGA. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's going to take some creative, creative selling and creative support from the corporate side for that to happen. Cause the money has to come from somewhere. Right. I mean, I don't know how much the men's purse is now, but it's probably, you know, close to double, maybe what the women's are. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, so you have to make up that somehow. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But we certainly have someone that is in the right seat now, which is exciting. 
very timely conversation with you today, Jane. This is I amazing. I know, it's perfect. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So after quite a bit of time in the administration of the LPGA Tour, you made another career pivot in 2011, taking on a role as VP of Player Relations at the WWE. That's that's wrestling for folks at home trying to figure out that the, the moniker. It's the first time in your career where you stepped out of golf. How did stepping into a completely different arena change your views on business and sports? Yeah, I got a call from a recruiter, how it kind of all started helps. So I got a call from a recruiter asking me about this position at this company, WWE. And I was like, WWE, you mean like wrestling? Like, I know nothing about wrestling. She's like, stay with me, stay with me. I understand. But, you know, I think what you're doing in your current job is really relevant to what, you know, what they're looking for at WWE. And one thing led to another and there it was. So what, you know, the challenge of being there for me, first of all, was I didn't know anything. I didn't know. So it'd be like getting into golf and not knowing what a par was or a birdie was or what, a, you know, what is a driving range? Do you drive your car there? Or what is that? You know, so that's how I was at WWE. I mean, the first day I got there, I printed out a wrestling term from Wikipedia and just pasted it on my wall, you know, because every time I went into a meeting and people were talking about about wrestling, I was like, what? I had to write down the word, you know, and I was like, I had to go back and figure out what that word, it's like speaking another language. But the interesting thing about WWE, first of all, it was an amazing experience. It's a public company. So with about a thousand employees. So I went from, at that point, the J was small, but maybe 60 people worked there. And something I knew inside and out, like literally, you know, being on the plane side and then going to the corporate side, it was like, sometimes I didn't have to think it was, I, I just, I had lived it. Right. So it was just so for me, very comfortable. And so, you know, stepping out of that comfort zone and taking that risk, not only in a different, like I said, in a completely different industry, but in a very big corporate situation was, it was really the best thing I could have done because my perspective of, working at a public company, working at a big company, working at a, a company that is cutting, cutting edge. WWE, the, you know, it's a huge entertainment juggernaut. No, by the way, is a little bit of wrestling that goes on. I mean, it is, you know, Vince McMahon and everything that they've done there, it's cutting edge. I mean, there's, there's budgets, but it's like, if you have a great idea at WWE and you, and you commit to doing it 110%, you feel pretty confident that whatever that cost is it'll be covered if I'm making a difference in the industry or making a difference in what I'm supposed to be doing. So it was, it's a really interesting, interesting place. It has, you know, yes, it's wrestling and oh, by the way, it's fake, but I think what they have done in the industry, whether it's with the pay-per-view or over the top network and, you know, all the different, you know, aspects of social media and a hundred people that work in social media alone, you know, there. I mean, or more, the focus that they put on being cutting edge really with technology and things like that really was for me, just an amazing, amazing experience and really eye-opening and, you know, educational. What do you think professional golf as a business could learn from the WWE? Well, it's funny because when I was there, Twitter had just started kind of coming, you know, being, it started really becoming strong and they, they had, we had hired at WWE this, this woman to come in who was trying to explain to people, you have to use social media. Like, this is what it is. This is how you use it, you know? And I remember we set up all these meetings with all the talent and, you know, getting people and everybody with their Twitter accounts and what you do and what you can't do. And we had this whole program. And I remember calling Mike Juan going, Mike, 
you have to, you got to hire this woman. Like this was <laughs> unbelievable. And he did. I mean, I, like a year later, I think Amy ended up going down there and doing something with them. And, and it was funny because I think it was Stuart today on the golf channel mentioned, you know, like Mike Wan, what a great idea he had, like putting the Twitter handles on the back of you know, the caddy bibs. And I was like, yes, there we go. So, I mean, and he, it was funny when I was watching it this morning, because I thought of, you know, that whether it came from that, I don't know, but uh, you know, I, I mean, there, the, the catch 22 with WWE is that they are, they're a public company and, and uh, literally listen, last, last year, forget about the last year, but when I was there, they had, they certainly have the cash and I'm sure they have the cash now, but they, they it's dispersed a little differently with COVID and all the things that, how that's affected him, but affected them, but they have the cash to put into being different and, and taking the risks. And Vince is one of those guys that, you know, if he has an idea and he thinks it's going to work. And I think the over the top network was a perfect example. I was there when they launched the WWE network and people were like, seriously, like people are going to like, pay $9 to watch the WWE network. And Vince said, we'll have a million, you know, we'll have a million subscribers in the first year. And we were, I remember sitting around like staff going, oh my God, that's a miracle. You know, first year, easily a million, easily a million people we had subscribed. You know, I think we had like a million and a half. And so it's, it's like that. You have to have that risk tolerance and the money to do it and the right people to be able to do it. And so I think it's such a different ball game, right? I think if the LPGA pays close attention to what companies like that are doing, you know, and getting ideas from that, I think that is, you know, the kind of the best course of action because getting out in front of things is very, very challenging. You know, let the companies like WB and whatnot do it on their own. So I still haven't recovered from the whole wrestling is fake bombshell. <laughs> I know it's upsetting, right? I know, I know. It's, it's fake, but I'll tell you what. Like I say to people, it's fake. Yes, it's all choreographed. Like who's going to win and everything. But when you jump off the top rope and you hit the, you hit that pad on the, you know, on the ring or you hit the ground, you're still hitting the ground and you're still like landing on your back on something, you know? So it's not, it's not like it's um, pain-free, put it that way. That part is not fake. So, yeah, the, yeah. The physics still applies. Those guys are like six, eight, three, ten. It's like fully. And yeah. they're, I mean, they have to be fit like that and, you know, and whatnot because they, the, the abuse that they put their body through is not, it's not nothing. I mean, it's like unbelievable, but they, you know, they're very passionate about their craft. They're really stunt people is really what they are, you know? So that craft of, of jumping off the thing and making it look like, you know, I hate you and I'm, I'm beating the crap out of you. And then, you know, then they get to the back and they're like, hey, are you okay? You know what I mean? They're like, you know, I, God, I did that a little wrong or, you know, whatever. How are wrestlers, how are wrestlers compensated? So they are compensated. They have a, a contract that is a, a guarantee, okay, that they have every year. And then that guarantee as they make money during the year, which in a typical year, say, this one's not typical, but in a typical year, they do Monday Night Raw, which is a live TV show, and then SmackDown. Those are the two TV shows that they do. And then three or four days of more of that week, they are doing what's a live show. So they might come to Atlanta and do a show on a Saturday night, and they'll fill the arena, but it's not on TV. We call those live events. So there's the TV events and live events. Then every one of those TV events and live events have house numbers, right? So if you fill the house, there's a certain amount of revenue that the WWE gets from that house. And a part of that pool is paid to the wrestlers. 
what's paid to them is based on how well they did at that show, how many, how many people cheered or how many people booed because it's all the same. So I actually, my job when I got there, which was really interesting considering my level of knowledge. I mean, I, I literally had to get very good at understanding wrestling because my job was to pay the wrestlers every week. So I would get all of the data from all the shows and all the pools of money. And I'd have to watch W if I wasn't, I was at most of the shows, the, the TV shows, but I'd still go through and, and watch the matches like quick and like, okay, that guy, that was really good. He like got, he, you know, that was got a lot of claps or whatever. That was very simply put, but, and then I would read reports from the live shows that our, our producers would send to me and say, you know, Joe Smith, he did, you know, he was hot. You know, that was good. You know, oh, this match was average, you know, the crowd reacted. So anyway, I would pay, then I would do all the payroll for all the wrestlers every week. It was a trip. It is a trip. Like me, me, Jane Getty's the golfer is like paying the wrestlers. I mean, clearly this was like, as I was there for a while and started understanding wrestling. How much does a typical wrestler make? Like, you know, hundredth on the PGA tour money list is a million bucks and LPGA is, you can look it up, right? Yeah. 300,000 or whatever. What, what making, is? Yeah. They're making a few, they're the lower level people are making a few hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So it's a great, you know, it's, and, 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 the, and the top guys are making millions and millions, you know, so, and, and it really depends on the scale and there's a whole developmental program too, that, you know, they're making a little bit less than that. So it really depends on where they are on the, on the, you know, on the roster, it's about 150 people total that are involved in men and women you know, from pro developmental golf. all the way up to the, it used to be, it was something. It really was. <laughs> I have to be honest. It was like like a dream. Five years of like, what am I doing here? So, anyway, but it was good. It was good. It was, it was, it was a great place to be. So fast forwarding to today, you're you're back in the golf business, and you're now the CEO of the Legends Tour, the official senior tour of the LPGA, showcasing golfers age 45 and over. For those who don't know much about the Legends Tour, can you tell us a little about who's involved? How is it structured? What's your schedule yeah. like? Give us just give us a 101 for those yep. who may not be familiar with the tour. First, I'll start with saying it's a little bit of a misnomer, our name that we're a legends tour, because we're not really a tour. I would love to say that we have, you know, 20 events and but I, I don't know that we'd have enough players to even that would want to play 20 events right now. So the the I'll go back about 20, I don't know, 20 uh, 23 or four or five years ago. A group of LPGA players that a little bit older than me at that point started thinking about, you know, we don't have a champions tour. We don't have anything like that. So what are we going to do? We, let's all, let's all, you know, put a little money in, put, you know, I think they all put in $5,000 and said, let's start this thing. Let's organize. Let's the women's senior golf association. They organized. And at that point, Jenny Blaylock, who used to play on tour, had created a, she had already had a, a golf um, business, Jenny Blaylock Golf, where she was putting on golf events and, and doing things like that. So Janie said, you know what? Or they asked Janie, you know, will you kind of oversee this for us and help us? And she said, yeah. So for about, I would say 18 years or so, maybe 20, Janie did that. And she would get events for the players and she basically ran the tour. And so fast forward to now and and we all were like can't we do something more with this at this point most of us had retired already we were like 45 ish a little bit older and you know it was like what can we 
can we do something? Like, is there more we can do? So one thing led to another. And now fast forward a little bit to 2019. So I went back to work for the LPGA and I was, I was doing that. And Mike Wan and I met one day and we were just catching up on life. And he said, Hey, what's going on with the Legends Tour? And I, I said, you know, oh, just kind of plugging along, not really, nothing really to report. And he suggested that I take this role and, you know, kind of, you know, why don't you, once you go do it, you know, kind of remember back to when we started and, you know, see what you can do and see if you can, you know, kind of get, get it going a little bit, you know, better. That was 2019. That was June of 2019. I was kind of jamming along until COVID hit, you know, I kind of, I, I had, you know, probably five or six events, not tournaments, all different events. I look at from pro-ams to little team events to, so it's, so again, we're not really a tour. We're just a sort of a culmination of events. And um, so anyway, I was kind of cruising along and then COVID hit and then everything kind of imploded. So I'm starting over again right now, a little bit, trying to get our pieces together for this year. And I've had some very positive support from, you know, we have I think we have four events on the schedule right now. I'm, I'm talking of four or five or six more groups that hopefully we'll be doing things this year or the next. So we're plugging along. It's, you know, it's just me. And so I'm a one person show. I do work with some of my, my old pals at the LPJ when I need something or I have questions or I need some advice or some, you know, I, I need a sales deck. Can you guys help me? I need, you know, something, whatever. I'd love to get it where we are, you know, where I've got a, you know, I've got a maybe 10 or 15 events where I have, you know, players can participate in and, and, and connect a little bit more with the LPJ. And that's really the end goal. I mean, if we can get to the point where we fall under the LPJ umbrella, which is my ultimate goal. And, and I think was Mike Wan's goal as well. And I think it would make sense um, for the LPJ to have this under its umbrella as well. And, and use the players. We have 15 Hall of Famers and some of the greatest names in golf are part of the Legends Tour. So I sell a product that people know, certainly people that followed our era know. So that makes it fun for me because I'm really doing stuff for my for my peeps and my friends. So I'll, I'll jump in with a quick follow-up. As CEO, how do you spend most of your time? What are the biggest issues that keep you up at night? Yeah, I'm, it's really about connecting with people on events because I'm I'm one person, but you have to get that together. So that's really what I do. And it's really getting people t- to have the tools to be able to go out in their communities and sell it because it takes money, right? So it takes money to run these events. The price point is not high at all. It's it's a low price point. And I'll, I'll tell you what the price point is because if anyone's listening that is interested. So the best formula that I have for it is if you put on an event and the event has a purse, say, I'm just going to make up a number, it's $200,000. You double that and then minus a little bit. So all in the cost of that event would cost about $350,000, $325,000. So to put on an event for players compared to any other golf tour out there is at least a million dollars less or more or a couple million dollars. So you know, the price point is low. I, again, it's, it's about selling players that people know. I call it the Nancy Lopez era. What keeps me up at night is getting the word out there and keeping the conversations going because that's the hardest part is people go, yeah, that sounds great. We'd love to have you here. You know, all right, let's keep it going. <laughs> you know, like, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, you know, and they're all people that are doing other jobs and everything. So that's the challenge. You're talking to a former Legends Tour caddy here. You know, my Aunt Jenny There played, you go. <laughs> yeah, my, my Aunt Jenny played the LPGA Tour for 17 years, and yeah. she played in the Honda Cup, which is the Legends Tour version of the President's Cup, U.S. versus the world. 
and my aunt's from Peru. So I was playing mini tours and it was like early December and I had bombed out of Q school and she said, Hey, will you come caddy for me down in, I think, awesome. it was in I think it was St. Augustine. I was going to say Jacksonville. Yeah. Jacksonville. And I said, yeah. yeah, I'll come caddy for you. That's awesome. How yeah. fun. That's yeah, awesome. it was fun. We had a fun week. That's awesome. I have a question. The USGA created a new event in 2018, the U.S. Senior Women's Open. How involved were you in that process? And more specifically, how did it land at Chicago Golf Club? I've never yeah. been I've never been there, but it's arguably one of the most historic and exclusive clubs in America. And it just struck me as a huge get for the Senior Women's Open. Yeah, so for probably, well, a lot of years before 2018, but I would say for, you know, Five years before, Mike Davis had made a concerted effort to talk to players in my era that would have been, you know, that would be qualified. It's 50, had to be 50, have to be 50 and over play and get them together to talk about the what ifs, right? In fact, when in 2014, when the men and the women actually played the US Open at the same place in Pinehurst, he invited a whole group of us there. He invited all the past it was the first time he, they'd ever done this. He invited all the past U.S. Open winners to come and get together for uh, just a private dinner with him. And, and at that, at that um, time, he met with all of us and talked about the what ifs on this senior women's open. And of course, you know, half of the reactions were, well, it's about time, you know, and my reaction, my personal reaction, knowing, knowing way more because I've been on the corporate side and the cost and all of it, right? I was maybe a little bit more, God, that would be great. I get why they kind of haven't sort of, I mean, they, you know, but I, I, I get that there's a tremendous cost there. Now fast forward in, in 2018 and they announced it's gonna be a Chicago golf club. I didn't know too much about Chicago golf club until I got there. Knowing then, I'll go back and the reason why I talked about the cost. And I, I thought, you know, as it's leading up to it, right? And I'm thinking, how is, what are they going to do? How are they going to do this? They're going to lose so much money on this event. You know, I kept thinking it like the cost of the infrastructure and the tents and the ropes and the this and that. How are they going to get the sponsors? And it's such a, I'm like worried, right? I get there. And the USGA, they they absolutely pulled it off like they, they created the most big feeling intimate big tournament that you could ever you I mean we could have not asked for anything better so we knew there weren't going to be tons of fans we knew there wasn't going to be a ton of corporate there weren't going to be corporate tents or anything right so what they did was they made it about the players we all got these beautiful brand new Lexus to drive as soon as you pull in. We had a, an awesome food and drink area. We had a private party on Wednesday for only the players and their guests. And Mike Davis was there and they had speakers and Charlie Meacham was there. And, you know, P Ty Bota, everybody that was a, kind of a part of all of our lives was that were there to speak and no ropes, no ropes except for around the tees and around the greens. And we thought, are you kidding me? Like, what happens when they, there are going to be fans? I mean, this is going to be a nightmare. That was the only thing we all said. It ended up being us coming away from that week saying, I never want to play in another event without that has ropes. Like the feeling of 
teeing off and you, you know, there's ropes and then you walk down the fairway and people are walking with you and you come up to the green and they go, they go back out around the ropes. And then you, it was the coolest Laura Davies said after that, I was talking to her after she won that week. She said, one of the coolest moments was walking up 18. She said, I felt like I was at the British open. Like, you know, all the fans that were there were just walking up 18 behind her, you know, and here she comes up 18, you know, the winner of this, it was amazing. And by the way, Chicago golf club, I've never played a golf course like that. It was the most phenomenal golf course. They set it up perfectly for us. It was hard as could be, but they set it up perfectly. What a track. I mean, I, I've never, I've just never played a course like that. And in and the, and the history and the clubhouse, I think every person walked away from there saying, wow, they, they killed it, you know, and they did the same the, you know, the following years, you know, I mean, it was, it was similar. So anyway, it was, it was pretty special. It was pretty special to be a part of it, that, especially that first year. So very cool. I'm happy I'm exempt. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I got to go for me. So anyway. That's a great story and good on the, again. good on the USGA. That's such a, I, I oh. just thought, I thought to have the inaugural at, at a venue like that. And I, it seemed like a home run. I, I, you know, my aunt played in it, Jenny played. And yeah. so I, I followed along and that's, that's just a big win that maybe didn't get as yeah. much publicity, but that's yeah. really, it's really well done. That's an awesome story. Yeah. It was what a place, what a place that was. So yeah, it was cool. Very cool. And it was very sincere. It was very sincere by the USGA, which made it even better. You know, they were really proud. Mike Davis in particular was really, he wanted to know how he felt, you know, the whole week. How is it? How is it? How is it? How is it? You never, that never happens at the open. You know, there it's like the players are doing their thing. It's like, you don't even see Mike, you know, you know, so it was really cool that they were really a, a integral part of it and wanting to make it great. So it was fun. Well, Jane, this has been a great conversation. We are going to wrap up with a few short, easy questions. This is the easy part. And Dan is going to lead the way. This segment is called tap-ins. So Dan leads the charge on golf questions. We kind of flip roles and I lead the charge generally on uh, business questions. So Dan, take it away. All right. Jane, favorite golf course? Congo Golf Club. I had a feeling you were going to say that. I know. That was top of mind, right? That was perfect. Favorite 19th hole. Oh, I, I don't know the name of the, oh God, it's not really a 19th hole, but I would say it's St. Andrews. There's like an amazing, there's a bar like right off the thing that's uh, right off the 18th hole. I can't think of the name of it. You have to fill in the blank for me on that one. What's, it's owned by American, it's owned by Americans too. Then they, the, in, Is it the you know, Dun, Dun Vegan? I think it is. I think yeah, it is. I've, I've never been. I've heard it. I think it's called think the Dun Vegan. I think I, you're right. I, I think I, a bunch I, of the I guys that own it. Pebble Beach bought it or something. Yeah. Um, There's nothing bad about being in St. Andrews, by the way. So. Never, never. That's a whole nother story. Which LPGA player, former or current, would make the best wrestler? Oh, God. Christina Kim. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she killed me. No, she probably think actually that was funny. I, I think actually. <laughs> <laughs> what's harder q school or law school q school it's the it's the finality of it and after what's missing more... it once that I, I i know that yeah if you miss if you miss the one law school exam you can still get bailed out q school exactly. seems more uh more fatal exactly 
What's more important to have in a pro golf tour, marketable players or loyal sponsors? Loyal sponsors. When will we ever see a mixed gender event on the official schedule of the PGA and LPGA tour? Oh, I hope soon. That was the best event we used to play in the, the, the JCPenney mixed team. And it was the best event. Every players on both tours. We love that event at the end of the year. So I hope they do it soon. It was great for the fans. Great for the players. I, I really hope they, they figure out how to get that back. I caught a bit of the Vic open a couple of years ago. That was a really fun event to see. Yeah. Sure. Right. Uh, right. So that's a model right. that seems to work too. Yep. Yep. That's it for tap-ins. Roberto, over to you for, for our business questions. Okay, Jane, this section is called buy or sell. Buy or sell, Tokyo Olympics. Knowing I've spent a lot of time in Japan, I got to say buy. Okay. Buy or sell, Connecticut. Okay. Buy if you don't have to pay the taxes. Buy or sell, children learning to play the piano. Oh, buy. Buy or sell, professional golf jumps to a streaming service in the next five years. Oh, buy. Absolutely. Buy or sell, the real estate market in Tampa in the 5 to $17 million range. Buy. It is crazy right now. I'm not buying it, but I mean, you know, somebody, somebody's buying it. Are you selling it? I, I am selling real estate. Yeah, that. I've had my real estate license for quite a while, actually, in Connecticut and here. So okay. I'm kind of doing the side. I, I saw I peaked at so. I peaked at some of your listings and I, I gotta start playing better if I'm gonna be one of your clients. Twenty nine million dollars, right? Derek Jeter's house that, that Tom Brady is living in right now. Oh, I heard it's about on the market that. here. Twenty nine yeah. million dollars. Just boop. I gotta pop down and see Tom and Giselle and you know, check out the real yeah, estate. Check it out. You I'll yeah. I'll show you around it. I'll take you for a tour. Okay. <laughs> could be could be our next studio for all we know. Yeah, yeah. yeah is there, there studio go. space there? Could we uh, you know? the, there's, there's space for everything else. I mean, I'm sure there is. Who knows? <laughs> Buy or sell Bitcoin. Buy. Buy or sell self-driving cars. Buy. I have I, I have a Tesla and I was self-driving it this last weekend from Vero Beach back to Tampa. Unbelievable. Wow. Strong endorsement. No lie. It was really crazy. First time That's I ever cool. used it and it works. Buy or sell, getting a law degree in 2021. Buy. It was and easy. that is the last buy or sell. Jane, Did thanks. Did I have so any sells, by the way? I, uh, I, I was very positive on all of those. Yeah. Well, you're cool. trying to sell the real estate, so it depends how you look well, at that true. one. true. Right, yeah. right, right. So, Roberto, we just wrapped up with Jane. Great conversation. Lots of topics covered. Where should we start? Gosh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, first of all, Jane has incredible energy. That's where I would start. Like, I just don't feel like she has many bad days. You know, we all know those people and those are the best people to have in your life. And I don't feel like Jane has a lot of bad days. But second, man, just like total self-starter, you know, like, I mean, professional golfers, there's no team, there's no coach, like you totally have to be self-motivated, but she takes it to another extreme, I think. She totally creates her own momentum. And, you know, to retire at, in her mid-40s or early 40s and saddle up at law school, pretty strong move. And then to just launch out and work for the WWE. And then what she's doing now, she's a one-woman band at the Legends Tour. Yeah, that's, the lady can hustle. It does not stop, like you said. And the fact that in this point in her career, 
she has channeled this whole CEO as chief salesperson mentality. I think that's out of necessity, given that she is a one-person show. But hearing how she describes how she modeled some of that after Mike Wan when he was at the helm of the, of the LPGA as a recipe of success really stood out. Uh, from a strategy perspective, and I look at that from a business perspective and a business decision, and how she, as the CEO of the Legends Tour, has set the tone for what she thinks the competitive advantage of her tour needs to be, which is building relationships. And she clearly has owned that as the fabric of her tour through and through. So very impressive how she has made that a reality for the Legends Tour and continues to do that with great high energy even today. No doubt. And hey, how about Mike Wan? Went to every tournament for 11 years. I mean, get you some of that. You, you, you want to talk about having some credibility and being able to walk into a room with players or sponsors and walk, you want to talk about walking the walk. That's incredible. Seriously incredible. Walking the walk, flying the flights, whatever you want to call it. That's a lot of time on the road, but, but, you know, massively impressive and, and the hats off to him. Yeah. And something tells me the LPGA has one less citation jet than uh, the PGA tour does. So I think there's a, probably a platinum bag tag on his backpack that, uh, that Mr. Monahan does not have. That's right. Well, so out to you, Roberto, you know, really the role of experience is another thing I kept thinking about. So how do you balance experience versus talent or talent and drive? My personal opinion is talent and drive. We're going to beat experience every time. And her story kind of bears that out. You know, her best years on the tour were the early part of her career, which was what, 86, 87. Her, you know, those were the first two or three years on tour. And then even my experience, hell, I'm a lot more experienced than Matt Wolf and Joaquin Neiman and all these guys, but they clean my clock every week because they have more talent at 22 years old. And, you know, I think it's kind of encouraging in a way because it shows you what Jane's done is if you have talent you have drive and you're willing to get out there and work, you can change lanes. You can do different things. I mean, you want to talk about experience or lack of experience. My mind is still blown from the whole showing up at the course, not much warm up, no practice after the round and playing the best golf of her career just because she was journaling. Like that, that just is amazing to me. I mean, I don't warm up before my rounds either, but I, mean, I have very different expectations about what my game can do. I don't know if you were watching much golf or at this time, you probably were. And uh, I was watching this tournament is like the 1999 greater Milwaukee open. And the only reason I tuned in is because Carlos Franco was playing and he was in the hunt and I'd seen him growing up in Brazil a little bit. He shows up at the course 20 minutes before his tee time, leading the tournament reporter goes, Hey, Carlos, you got to hit some balls. No, you got to hit some putts. No. And the reporter, you just look at him confused, like this guy is doing it wrong. But here goes Franco, first tee, nice fluid long swing, stripes it down the middle of the fairway and goes on to win the tournament by a million. So I, I don't know if he was journaling, but uh, he certainly was subscribing to some part of what Jane had to say there. Totally. And golf is full of those stories, man. It's such a game of opposites. It's just total, you know, it just totally gets your brain in a pretzel. Because if you want to hit it left, swing right. If you want to, you know, chip it low, swing up. It, there's all, everything is an opposite in golf. And I hear those stories all the time. I heard one last week that Lucas Glover's agent told some of the young guys that when Lucas won the Open at Bethpage, 
that the previous weeks they were just fishing together at Frederica. So they'd go fishing all day and then Lucas would play nine holes in the afternoon. And uh, Duval's old caddy said that at uh, Mercedes at Kapalua that they, he was out there walking the course on a Tuesday afternoon and David wasn't even there yet. And they ran into Davis Love and he goes, hey, where's uh, where's David? He's like, oh, he's skiing in, in Idaho. He's flying in tonight. And Davis Love just shook his head and said, we have no chance. This is like the peak Duval. He flew in Wednesday morning or something from skiing and he won the tournament by like eight shots at Kapalua. So there's a lot of stories that that bear that out. Incredible. I mean, all about mindset, I guess. What about the, let's talk about the wrestling bit. What, what did you take away from the wrestling chapter in your career? What stood out to you there? Because that was uh, that was the most fascinating part of doing research on Jane that stood out to me that we had to cover. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the confidence that you could walk into that office on day one and not know anything about wrestling and take a significant role in that organization. So two things, kudos to them for thinking outside the box hiring-wise. And then she had to have a lot of confidence to, to pull that off. And then two, man, just how that is a pure entertainment product and what the tour can learn from that. You know, I think competitive integrity is important, but sometimes we should think of the tour as a TV show first and maybe a golf tour second. And I think our product might get better. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. I mean, if there's, we all know sports entertainment first, but the WWE really dials that in. And the fact that she was able to take that, embrace that, and then bring some of that back into golf was interesting. I mean, it, I mean she talked about how the LPGA tour was able to channel into social media better and really make a presence and a more of an interpersonal connection with its sponsors and its constituents that way. I thought it was a really, it's, sounds sort of obvious to say now, but you can see how she describes it where, how it was not obvious at the time. So I really admired how she was able to take that from WWE and make it land in golf. I mean, we heard this from Harry Arnett too, how he talked about Cali golf and how they made a similar pivot to talk about their brand in a very different way. So I think it was super interesting. Yeah. I just think if you sat around at the tour and said, Hey, what are, you know, we have the Zurich team event but what are some other great TV shows we could put on? I've been thinking about this one for years and I was talking about it the other week, uh, Sunday playing. They should let tours buy mulligans coming down the stretch on Sunday. So, you know, if you're in second place and you rinse one on 17, would you pay 300 grand for a mulligan? Would you pay half a million bucks for a mulligan? If you had a chance to win, what if you're in 30th place and you three putt 17, you, you'd have to run the numbers and be like, Hey, I'll pay 15,000 bucks to hit that five footer again. I think it'd be a great TV show. Could be a little complicated, but I think there's something there. You're driving the Vegas odds makers crazy with that stuff. You're going to just absolutely throw off the system with that. But I, I like it. I like the chaos. I love it, but it would definitely make it entertaining. No question. And tour players are overconfident in their gamblers. I think it'd be amazing. The tour would make money because all these players would overspend on mulligans. The hundred percent would even like Friday afternoon, you'd have a guy like about to miss the cut by one and he would pay a hundred grand for a mulligan, just assuming that he was going to climb the board on the weekend. If he could just make the cut, they should, you know, give all the money to charity or something, but we need to really hash this out, Dan. 
I like it. I like it. Put some cash in those staff bags and we got something going. <laughs> exactly. You have to write a check the beginning of the week and until you run out of money. I love it. Well, good stuff. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Really enjoyed having Jane on. She was very generous with her time. And um, we'll catch you next time on the Course Record Show.